Welcome, everybody. Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 255 recap on Twitter spaces. It's June 15th, and we have a nice lineup of news items as well as special segments. We'll be talking about the Taproot Annex today. We'll be talking about silent payments. We're going to talk about our waiting for confirmation series, talking about DOS protection. We have a Bitcoin Core PR review club that we'll get into, and then releases and PR updates at the end of the newsletter. Jumping right into it, let's do some introductions. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin projects full-time. Tidwell? All right, we'll skip Tidwell. Ruben? Oh. Hey, yeah, I've been working on silent payments for the past half year with Josie. Josie? Hey, Josie. I work on Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin Core related projects. Yeah, like Ruben said, I've been working on silent payments, working on writing the BIP and also the implementation for Bitcoin Core. Joost? Hey, I'm Joost. I've been working quite a bit on L&D and the Lightning space in general and recently also moving a little bit into the L1 space, seeing what that's all about. Excellent. Well... Thank you all for joining us. We'll jump into the newsletter and we'll just go chronologically. This is newsletter 255. The first news item is discussion about the Taproot Annex. And I think it was episode 253 of the podcast, Yoast, where we were discussing the transaction relay over Noster topic and how relaying Uh transactions on Noster could afford some benefits in terms of resiliency and also potentially more liberal rules around relaying transactions or packages of transactions. And one example that came up during the conversation was the relaying of non-standard but consensus valid transactions using the Taproot Annex field, which was introduced with Taproot activation. And the intention of the Annex was for future soft fork use. Now, Merch, before we have Joost explain his mailing list post, what what is the Taproot Annex? Yeah, so the Taproot Annex is an input field that is uh, basically an optional additional input field. Naturally, we can't just add input fields to the regular transaction serialization. That would be a consensus change. So it's serialized into the witness stack. But you can think of it as basically a field like the sequence on the input. And so far it's unused. The idea is that we can use it in future consensus and protocol upgrades. There's now some proposals floating around how it could be used. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So Yost, maybe now that we know what the Taproot Annex is at a high level, and we sort of know the, the background of the discussion, what content from your mailing list post do you want to jump into in terms of how potentially this Taproot Annex could be used and and what sort of use cases maybe you want to jump into that yeah yeah indeed there's two ways to approach this so one is very technical like what could the format be what are the 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 concerns with enabling the taproot annex but indeed as you say i think the use cases are really important like i jumped into into this quite naively initially i thought okay let's just enable it and like everybody can use it for whatever they want but obviously like smarter people had thought for a long time about stuff like that already which I all discovered in maybe the past two weeks, like in replies that people patiently posted to my mailing list posts. But the, the, 
the, the main driver for me to, to be very interested in this is simulating covenants with pre-signed transactions. And this is an idea I don't know who came up with this originally, but I do know that uh, Brian Bishop has his uh, Python repository where he creates a time-locked vault using pre-signed transactions. So the idea is that you you move funds into a special address, and this address can only be spent from using a key for which the private key has been deleted. So the only way to spend those funds is using prepared pre-signed transactions that you need to hold on to. And those are the only ways that you can spend that coin. And those pre-signed transactions have outputs with certain conditions that create the logic of the vault. So in case of a time-locked vault, what you do is you create the vault using a transaction, and then you've got two pre-signed transactions. So one allows you to move those funds into, let's say, cold storage, like a super safe storage location. And the other spend path allows you to unvault. And unvaulting means that you will get access to those coins, but only after a time lock. So not, not unlike a physical vault where there is a time lock that you need to wait out in order to access what's inside the vault. And there are some problems with, with this. So one is that you are creating signatures using a key that you're, that you're deleting. But you have to be very sure that you're deleting that key. So this part, I'm not really proposing to solve using the annex. But to think what, what I think is very interesting about the annex is that it allows you to save those signatures of the pre-signed transactions into the full transaction itself. So normally, if you create those pre-signed transactions, there's data that you cannot lose. You need to hold on to that because if you lose that, and this is the, the signature in particular to spend the vault output, if you lose that, you lose the funds. And the idea of storing it on the chain, of course, is to leverage Bitcoin's superior robustness properties so that you cannot lose that information. And you could, for example, try to do this with an inscription the only problem there is that you create a circular reference because you want to back up the data of those pre-signed transactions into the transaction that they spent. And because the transaction ID, when you use an inscription, for example, is depending on the actual content that you in inscribe, it means that the pre-signed transaction is spending from a transaction ID that is dependent on the pre-signed transaction itself. So I'm not sure if maybe I should stop here to see if people are still following along here, what, what the problem is of trying to back up those signatures on the chain. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question here. So if we put data in the annex, it is irrelevant for script validation, but the input signature still has to commit to that. So the signature, oh, I see. Yes, never mind. The signature obviously does not change DTX ID, and therefore you don't get the problem that you have with the inscription. I see. I answered my own question. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So th that's the idea. And I think so far I haven't seen an another way to, to, to do this. So it seems this is like a unique property of the annex where you can store data about child transactions. In this case, pre-signed transactions signed with an ephemeral key. You can store them without creating that circular reference. So this is, this is the main use case that I have in mind, like a way to get covenants. So does it only need to, it's not only for faults, but you could also imagine like other use cases of covenants that you can simulate, or maybe you could also say implement using these pre-signed transactions and making them safer than they used to be by storing the critical data of those pre-signed transactions on the chain itself. Now, if, the, if those signature pieces of signature data- Hey, Joost, I have a question if I, if I may. Go ahead, go ahead. You mentioned this, these are going to be for deleted keys, and I'm wondering how would you ensure the key is deleted? Yeah, yeah. Well, that 
that's the other part of using pre-signed transactions that makes it potentially not as secure as using a, a real covenant. So this is uh, assuming that you've got the signature itself secured, then there it can still be worries about, okay, is the key actually deleted or is it hold, hold on to by someone or was the ephemeral signer compromised? And a way to mitigate this, and I think this is also in Brian's prototype already, is to have multiple of those ephemeral signers. And using music too, you can cheaply in terms of chain space, combine multiple signatures. So what you could do is, for example, you've got a hardware device that does a ephemeral signer, and then there might be, maybe there's like, people or companies offering ephemeral signing services out on the internet that you can use to create a key, sign using that key and get the key deleted again. And if you combine all of those, it doesn't matter if one of them holds onto the key because the aggregate key is still ephemeral. So this would be a way to, to mitigate this to some, some, to some extent. Joost, are there other use cases that you had in mind for the, for the annex or was there feedback on the mailing list or elsewhere about things that folks were potentially going to use the annex for. Yeah, I think the other bigger one, but it doesn't interest me personally so much. It's just that it can make inscriptions more efficient because currently with those inscriptions, you always have a commitment transaction that spans to a specific output. And then there's the reveal transaction that inside the tab script is going to reveal the actual data of the, of the inscription. And with this, that would be much simplified because basically any taproot spent you can accompany by arbitrary data. So there's not a commit reveal. And this means that the total number of bytes on chain to store the same data goes down. So more block space left for, for other things. But this is not really like a functional improvement. It's mostly an efficiency gain. Go ahead, Merch. I have a follow-up question on the revolting with your proposal to Annex Vault. So... If I revolt a payment because, I don't know, it, it was flowing out, but you, sorry, is there even, a, you, you said there's a way to get access to the funds or maybe I'm, I'm okay, what I'm trying to do is compare it to the recent upvault proposal by James O'Brien. So if you have a vault here, it only has one path to spend, right? It can only go to one specific address, which is the one that you have pre-signed the transaction for. Is that mm -hmm. right? Single path? Yeah, yeah. So wouldn't wouldn't your transaction, sorry, wouldn't the, the key for the address that you're paying to become your new single point of failure? So what's the difference between that and holding the funds in that destination address in the first place? Because if you lose access to the destination address, the attacker just needs to wait for the transaction to go through. So you mean the key, the ephemeral key becomes a single point of failure? Is that what you mean? Or the output of that pre-signed transaction? The script pub key that you're paying to. With the pre-signed transaction, you mean? Or the vault? Correct. The vault, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you could say it, but the idea is that this key is deleted, right? So it's not the same as keeping it in your wallet where you also have that key stored somewhere. Sorry, I think we crossed the wires. The destination address where you receive the funds from the vault of the payout at a transaction. Yeah. If that is unchangeable and you have no other path to spend, essentially ah, yeah. your new single point of failure. So it's not clear to me how this is an improvement. Yeah, yeah. Now I remember, I think when I initially explained this like 10 minutes ago, I was talking about two spent paths, but okay, let me correct that. I think the, the, the most basic idea is that there is one spent path from the vault to unvault. And the output of that is time locked. And then you're saying if the destination is fixed, you just wait out the time lock and then you have access to the funds anyway. So it's just a nuisance. But the, the, 
the way this should work is that if you do this unvolt and there is a time lock that allows you to spend it, while you're waiting for that time lock to expire, you can also use a second pre-signed transaction that sweeps that funds that are now pending release, sweeps that to a more safe destination. Does that make sense, Merch? Yeah, I think we're we're getting a little too far into the weeds. I, I guess my, my question would be how a proposal that is based on an annex vault would compare to the up vault proposal. Maybe yep. that's the question that I'm really trying to ask. I see. I see. I, I think so. I'm no expert on the up vault proposal. I think the, the the general idea is sort of the same, like where you, if you create a vault using the annex, there's a time lock path and there's like a, a recovery path. So if some, in, in case you see an, an unvault operation that is not authorized or you didn't unvault that, you can rescue those funds and sweep them to to cold storage. I think in that regard, they, they, they are similar. The difference though, is that with vault you don't need to worry about these ephemeral keys that need, really need to to be ephemeral. Joost, can you comment a bit about some of the considerations that Greg Sanders brought up in terms of things that he's been experimenting with with Ellen Symmetry and considerations around coin join and multi-party protocols that came mm -hmm. out of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't know that much about Ellen Symmetry, but I do understand like the problems brought up with, with, with coin joins. And this is assuming that suppose, step root, or suppose the annex would be standard without restrictions. It means that anyone could add an annex to to to, to inputs that they that they sign. And one of the ways to create problems with this is if you are in a coin join type of protocol and you are the last one to sign. Everybody has signed already. The fee rate has been determined, and then you sign, but you also add a very large annex to the transaction and you sign for that, and then you publish. So this means that the transaction, like everybody was counting on a, a certain fee rate. And now all of a sudden that fee rate is much, much lower because you added such a big annex to the to the input. And then the conjoint transaction does not confirm. To be clear, I think this could be done by any participant in the protocol by just malleating the transaction after it was signed by everyone. Because the annex is only committed to by the signature on the same input. So the other inputs do not commit to annexes of, well, each Annex is only committed to by the same input. So, so mm -hmm. there is no, there's only first party malleability controlled by every single signer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true indeed. But I think that one is easier to, to do something about. So, you, let's say the coin joint transaction is finished and one of the participants creates a different version of that with, a, with an inflated annex and just publishes that. But what I understand for this is that currently, there's no replacement of such transactions. So even though if like another participant would come up with the same coin joint transaction without that annex, which consequently has a higher fee rate, Bitcoin Core is not going to do the replacement. It holds on to the, the first transaction that it sees. And I think there is an older PR that allows for replacement of transactions that have the same TX ID but a different witness if those increase the fee rate of the transactions. So basically making the, the replacement or the, the mempool more incentive compatible because you would have more space for other transactions. Right, but you might get a cheap broadcast there if the fee increase isn't at least one in relay transaction fee step. Yeah, yeah, and then the proposal in that PR is just to require like a minimum reduction in the business size so that you cannot reduce it by one byte each time you broadcast. Gloria? Can I interject? Yeah, so I think Merch already brought up the, the, the problem with the PR, which was 
actually this is mentioned in the in the post the our, the policy post later but yeah like rbf currently requires you to pay quote unquote new fees to pay for the bandwidth of the replacement transaction and you can't do that if you're not changing the txid because you're going to have the same inputs and outputs I think with the reduction, like there's also, there's a proposed rule of like, oh, if the transaction is decreasing by enough size, AKA the fee rate goes up by enough, like some, some threshold where we're like, oh, maybe this is okay. Cause you would only be able to do this. I don't know, log in times and that would be okay. But like, then you would still have the same pinning problem where you can have one of the participants broadcast a version of the transaction with a stuffed witness, but like such that there's no way for you to reduce it like by enough. I mean, like you might still end up with a, a similar, you'd have to look at the numbers, but you might have a similar pinning problem. Well, but since you... we only have first party malleability here and not third party malleability, it would only be the original signer of that input that has influence on, on being able to broad well, okay, if they first signed the smaller transaction. Yeah, I, I get you. Never mind. But Gloria, do you mean that they stay just below that minimally required reduction so that you cannot replace it with the smaller version? Yeah, essentially. Let's say yeah. Yeah, so they, they propose like five percent minimum. So if you make a four point ninety nine percent then you cannot do the replacement and you're stuck with a slightly heavier transaction Basically, there. Basically, yeah. But then, like, yeah. you know, they've also only stuffed it by a little bit. So I don't know. You just have to look at the numbers and, and see what looks acceptable for both the application and the, like, DOS thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think Greg also proposed to, in, in addition to the 5% rule, also always allow replacement by a input that has no annex. So that if you're dealing with protocols that shouldn't involve an annex and somebody does add an annex, annex even if it's only one byte, you still always have like one option to to replace it by the by zero annex version. So basically overruling the five percent rule there. Yeah, that sounds cool. I, I think it, it's it's nice to like finally have a, a use case to think about for this witness replacement PR because I think it's been talked about for a few years, but it always boiled down to like, well, does anyone actually need this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe they have something now. Ruben, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I, I was curious if you had any feedback on this discussion. Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts. So one, one thought I have is that if it were possible for every input to sign the same annex or the same annex data, then you don't have the malleability problem because everybody on the input side would have to agree. That would be a consensus change, but that would be something that could be maybe considered here. The other thing or question I have for Yoast, I haven't fully read up on the mainland discussion, so I don't know the full details, but I'm wondering if you put the signature data in the annex doesn't that allow anyone to publish your pre-signed transaction? And oh, if yeah. It, yeah, and, and if it doesn't, then I'm also wondering, well, then there still must be some data that must be remembered in order to be able to publish it. So you still have this backup problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand what you're saying there. So that it could, for example, be a pre-signed transaction that is a two of two. So one is an ephemeral key, and then it still needs to be authorized using another key that you need to remember. But it could, for example, be the same key that you use to deposit into, into the vault. So I've also been thinking about, yeah. okay, what would, be, what would be an interesting demo that is like the minimal, minimal version that shows this. So not even a vault, like just, just one pre-signed transaction path. And I think what it is, is suppose you've got a wallet with coins. You take one of those coins, you put them into, into an address, and you can recover it from that address using 
pre-signed transaction. And the only thing that the pre-signed transaction does is add a CSV log. And you could call this like a, let's say, Bitcoin hodl protection. So you've got your, you've got your wallet and you locked all your coins in a, in a way that requires you to first broadcast a pre-signed transaction, wait out a CSV delay, and only then you can move them to another location to protect yourself from panic selling, for example. Let's say this is what you want to use it for. So in this case, you could, for all the, un- for all the non-ephemeral keys, you could always use the very same key that you used to deposit into it. So you've got a key, you deposit into it, then you use that same key to sign for broadcasting the, the pre-signed transaction to start the timer ticking. And then the output of that is also locked to that very same key, which is still the, your hot wallet key. Yeah, I see that. That pretty much answers my question, or at least the, the two of two, I can see that being a solution where you need a second signature to actually publish a transaction. Uh, yeah, and you the other idea, I can see how that's not a problem in terms of anyone putting that CSV transaction on chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in the interest of, of time, we should wrap up here. Joost, any parting words before we move on? I don't just one small thing that I found also interesting, I think also suggested by, by Greg, or maybe he got from someone else is to, to prevent these problems with people abusing the annex, is to create a policy rule that just not, not just allows every annex to be used, but requires people or like every input to opt into this by committing to an empty annex if they don't need an annex. And this is something I, 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 I find quite interesting. Like you, you relax it a little bit less. You still allow people to add annexes, but you need every input to at least commit to an empty annex to signal that, okay, we are aware of the risks here. So if you are using CoinJoin or dual-funded lighting channels, not every input will do this, meaning that the transaction remains non-standard, but it doesn't rule out the implementation of these faults, for example. Merch, any comments before we move on? I, I think that I'm curious to see how much weight that would add to transactions. Of course, there's a little bit of a problem just around the whole thing that other inputs don't commit to annexes. If that had been designed differently in the first place, this would be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think I'll be looking at the debate as it progresses, but I, I don't really have a strong opinion in any way right now. For anyone that's curious, there, there is quite a bit of discussion on the, on the mailing list, some, some back and forth. So jump into that if you're curious about what Yost is talking about here. Yost, thanks for joining us. You're free to stay on, or if you have other things to do, you can drop. All right, thanks for having me. Next news item from the newsletter is... Draft Bit for Silent Payments. And we have the authors here, both Josie and Ruben, to talk about their proposal. I think maybe to kick things off, Ruben, can you summarize what are silent payments? And then we can kind of go into some of the trade-offs and, and go from there. Sure. Yeah. So it's really an old idea that has been around for a long time to sort of have a way to get people to create basically the address for you in such a way that nobody can recognize on chain what the address is. So maybe to make it a little bit more simple, basically you have a single address and then anyone can use that address to derive a different address and pay you to that different address on chain. Uh, And this basically allows a much simpler payment flow where today, if you want to pay someone, you have to, if you want to pay them repeatedly, you have to ask them for a fresh address every time if you care about privacy. Otherwise, you could reuse the same address all the time, but now everybody can see exactly how many coins you received. So this proposal essentially allows you to have a single address, but still on chain, there will be fresh addresses, new addresses every time someone pays you, and only the sending recipients know about these addresses. So it really, in terms of sort of user-friendliness of how Bitcoin works or how you make a Bitcoin payment, I think it's a big step forward. 
where you can basically have a single address in a privacy preserving way. And Ruben, am I giving out this address to, am I making this public for every, anybody to use or am I giving out an address for each of my counterparties and then they use that address sort of for them to generate additional addresses? Yeah, no, it's it's really one address. So you could have your Twitter profile or something, you could have your single address. Everybody can just see that address and then send money to it and you'll just receive the funds and, and everybody will be using the, the exact same address. So that's, that's sort of the nice thing about it. You just have one address and you can give it out to everybody and everybody can pay you. And none of the people that are paying you can see that other people paid you as well. And this is an SP prefixed address, correct? So it's not a, a normal Bitcoin address? Yes, it's it's a different address format. So yes, I, I'd add one one thing here to your question about you know do do I hand this out? Do I just give it to everybody, or do I hand it out per counterparty? And I think one of the things that's nice that we added to the the BIP and the and the implementation is this concept of labels, where you can have your one single sign up payment address, and like Ruben said, you can post that anywhere that people can easily discover it. But you can also add a label to that. And that label is a way of kind of identifying where you're getting that payment from. So this this would allow you to use it in that scenario like you just described, where maybe I do want to actually have these reusable addresses, but I want to know who's paying me on the other end of it. And so then I could add a label to each of these addresses that I hand out. So you could imagine a scenario where like you're you're handing out these addresses to receive payment for work and you want to know who's paid you. Or let's say you're an exchange and you want to give every single customer on the exchange a static address unique to that customer that then they can pay you and you know, okay, hey, this customer paid me. So the, the TLDR is like it's both, right? You, you, you can have this static address that you just publicly post somewhere that anyone can use, but then you could also add this label concept to it as well, which I think opens up the use cases quite a bit for silent payments. I kind of want to follow up on the can tell who paid you. So just to be clear, as I understand it, the label allows you to modify how you receive the funds. And if you give out separate labels for everyone, you might have an indicator who you gave that label to. But strictly speaking, you actually do not learn anything about the sender. Yeah, that's correct. You you only you only know the label only has meaning to you. So you add some meaning to that label and then you hand it out to someone. But you don't really know anything beyond that. It's completely on the receiver's side. A couple follow-up questions. One for, for Josie here. You guys published the BIP. There's been some discussion about this idea for, for the last year or so. I'm curious what you think the most common misconception about silent payments is in getting feedback from the community. Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest misconception, and it's, I mean... Not necessarily. It's sometimes it's a misconception and also a criticism is that this doesn't work for mobile clients. That was kind of feedback that was brought up early on. I think March 2022, some people kind of raised that point. And and basically what that boils down to is so that there's kind of you know Ruben's mentioned this is a very old idea of these reusable payment codes. And I would kind of group all the proposals that have existed as either schemes that use notifications, on-chain notifications and schemes that don't. And silent payments, as far as I'm aware, is like one of the first ones that doesn't use notifications. And the way we get away with not using notifications is we have to scan the chain. So for a full node, this is not a problem. The job of a full node is to look at every new incoming transaction and every block and decide whether or not it's valid and whether or not to add it to its local 
longest chain. For a mm -hmm. mobile client, you don't ac have access to every transaction in every block and you don't want access to every transaction in every block. So the criticism with silent payments was, well, if you're switching to something that requires scanning, it's not going to work for mobile clients. I, I'm pretty confident that it, it will work for mobile clients, but with the trade-off that it's going to require more bandwidth. So I think we, we wrote a pretty nice section on the BIP to kind of address this of like mobile client support is going to be tricky, but we definitely think it's possible. And I think the clearest path forward is looking how we can do this with BIP 158. BIP 158, I don't, I don't think it's seen a lot of adoption in wallets right now. Um, so that's kind of an open question too, of like how well does BIP 158 work with mobile clients? But there's, there's quite a few other ideas that we're kicking around. I think there's definitely a path towards getting something that works with the Electrum protocol, but ultimately it's going to come down to a, a bandwidth trade-off. You're, you're going to have something that works with mobile your, your mobile wallet in a very privacy-preserving way, but with the cost of using more bandwidth. And I. I think a lot of the mobile wallets today are either backed by their own full node, which then in my mind, it no longer classifies as a mobile wallet, or they're making some sort of trusted trade-off with, with some other counterparty to give them that data. And so with silent payments, I'd say it's not much different. We have to look at, are we going to trust someone to do the scanning for us, whether it be my own node or at the expense of more bandwidth, can I actually run a mobile client in a privacy preserving way? I think that's the biggest one. I don't know, Ruben, if you have... Any other ones you want to add or any caller to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I agree that that's the one that a lot of people come back to. Yeah, I will say Josie ran the numbers. That's kind of interesting to add here as well. Then basically what we came up with is that it's going to be, so so essentially the, the there is this sort of trick we can use to minimize the amount of data that you need as a like client. And that trick is basically that you do not need to care about transactions that were fully spent. Because if a transaction was fully spent between the period that you last scanned and, and the next time you're scanning, then that's obviously not a transaction to you because you're not the one who, who could have spent it because you didn't learn about it yet. So with that sort of in mind, if you scan once every three days, then with today's taproot usage, that would be roughly 15 megabytes per month. And if we assume that everybody's using taproots in every block and it's completely filled with taproot transactions, then that would be roughly 150 megabytes. And if you only scan once every month, this goes down by roughly 3x. So then it would be, even in the worst case scenario, you would have to download an additional 50 megabytes per month. And that is not a lot, I think. But scanning once a month, obviously, is not ideal uh, in terms of that you you will know that you got paid, but you have to sort of, like, the more often you scan, the more bandwidth you would end up using. But you can imagine that you only scan when you're at home over Wi-Fi, or you do scan just once a month. And we have ideas to have out-of-band notifications where when somebody pays you, they can send you a notification and say like, hey, uh, take a look at this specific transaction. And if you do, you'll notice that you actually got paid. And so this is a way to sort of receive the instant notification out-of-band. But if that out-of-band notification fails for whatever reason, you still have to fall back of scanning once a month. So I think we got a pretty good, at least theoretical sort of framework as to how how to do the, the like client support. So, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about that, but I, I do agree it's you know it's it's some more it's some extra work and it needs to be worked out. So it's not it's not the simplest way to do a like client, but in general that is sort of what is needed to you know I, I think that's the general trade off that you get if you want to be as privacy preserving as possible. That tends to come with certain trade offs, and that, that that's usually inevitable. Do you? guys envision this as something when it when it's the, the adoption will be rolled out in terms of certain wallets will support send and certain wallets will will support receive or do, do you see that being 
sort of bundled together and that a wallet would, would implement both, you know, similar to what we've seen with like back 32 adoption. Is right. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Ruben. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think that's sort of at least one that connects to one point I, I wanted to make. So that's why I'm jumping in here. I, I think the really nice thing about asylum payments is that sending support is super easy to implement. Like literally you just, you're already using your private key to sign the transaction and then you use that same private key to generate the silent payment address that you want you want to pay to and so from the i, I think we're going to see relatively broad sender support and, and i think that is ultimately the important thing for adoption you want as many wallets to support sending as possible and then if you want to receive silent payments then you know many people can actually send them to you so I think that is sort of like the, the sender side, I think, is sort of where the bottleneck is in terms of adoption. And if you if you contrast that to the on-chain notifications, the sender support for on-chain notifications is actually quite a hassle because now you have to, whenever you want to make a payment to a, a new address, you would have to first make this transaction that is unrelated to your actual payment, which is sort of a UX nightmare, and it's it's difficult to implement. So I think that's really, that's been a hassle for BIP47 adoption, I think, and a sort of a impediment. And so I'm very optimistic that we're going to see a lot of sender side support. And on the receiver side, I think that's maybe a bit of a different story, but maybe uh, Josie can fill that in. Yeah, this is something I'd really like to highlight is I think a, a, a really big benefit of this proposal is that they are completely separate and you can implement them separately. So I imagine, you know... At, Pretty much every wallet out there, whether it's a light client or backed by a full node, could implement sending somewhat trivially. And I've actually been working with a few people and hacked together some proof of concepts of implementing sending. And we were able to do it in like an afternoon with, you know, very little code. And it's not it's not really invasive to how the wallet works already. You kind of piggyback off of how the wallet works already and add these additional steps, which I think is really nice. So Sender adoption, you know, everybody should do it, right? For, for the receiving side, then we talk about, okay, if you're, if you're a wallet that is backed by a full node, then I think receive, receiving support is not going to be too difficult because most of that work is going to be offloaded to the full node. So if you're using a wallet that's backed by like Umbral or, you know, one of these node in a box implementations, or if you're using a wallet that can be backed by a personal Electrum server, like Blue Wallet, Envoy, you know, whichever else, then I think receiving should be relatively simple because the full node is going to do the work for you. If you're a mobile only wallet that is not backed by a full node, then I think the receiving becomes a little bit more challenging. And that's where, you know, we've been putting a lot of thought into how that, that may work. But how I'd love to see this roll out is we get something merged into Bitcoin Core, which then means anybody who's using Bitcoin Core or is backed by Bitcoin Core, either by running a full node or using Electrum personal server, they get sending and receiving right away. And then we see a bunch of wallets implement the sending side, whether they're mobile or otherwise. And while that's all going on, we keep working on this engineering challenge of how do we make receiving on a mobile-only wallet feasible? Merch? Yeah, I, I wanted to point out something else that maybe you guys can also chime in on. One of the issues that I see around notification transactions are that they explicitly flag to any third party that's watching, surveilling the chain, that something unusual is going on here. Whereas silent payments are, of course, indistinguishable from any other transaction with a pay-to-taproot output. And so when you're sending a transaction that does the notification in other protocols that have previously implemented static addresses, 
then you have to be very careful about this announcement being completely separate from all the other payments and transactions that you're building with your wallet because it, it creates a strong fingerprint that you're using this protocol and you don't want to associate it with funds that are known to belong to you. And you, I mean, it it already reveals that that who who the receiver is to to everybody else, the notification transactions. So it sort of leaks social graph if people can find out who the sender was of the notification transaction. So I think the the most interesting part on silent payments is actually this absolute indistinguishability from regular payments in this protocol. And yeah. I I think like just getting rid of the notification transaction is is what makes this absolutely interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd add uh, something there because I think it's related to this conversation of sending and receiving. There, you know, like Merch mentioned, with the getting rid of the notification transaction, I think makes the UX of implementing this a lot easier because you don't have to worry about how to make that notification in a privacy-preserving way, and that can be that can be a leak if it's done incorrectly. I would also mention that with these, and this is kind of something that I got really excited about initially, is there may be scenarios where I want to pay someone somewhat regularly, but I don't want them to know that all those payments are coming from me. And I, when I say me, I don't mean me, my real identity. I mean me as an entity, me as some sort of code. And with these notification-based schemes, you, you can tell that, so we make the notification transaction. And then if I get subsequent transactions from the person who established that notification with me, I know that it's all coming from the same entity. They can get around that by generating a fresh notification every time for me, but then that kind of exacerbates the problem of how do I make sure that those notifications don't leak anything about my UTXOs and whatnot. So you kind of have this you know, tangled web of a problem of like, okay, well, I don't want the receiver to know that all these things are coming from me. And then also, if I generate a fresh payment code, I'm, I'm raising the cost of doing the transaction because these notifications take up chain space. And I'm also kind of, you know, I have to worry about this problem about the notification transactions leaking information. And so I think this is another reason why silent payments is very easy to implement on the sender side. You can implement it on the sender side and you don't, you, you can just use whatever management of your UTXOs your wallet is already doing. And you don't need to worry about leaking any information via a notification. And you can also implement sending and send to a receiver multiple times without worrying about them learning anything about you. So this is where I think silent payments fits really well into a reusable payment code scheme that is really focused on privacy. And, and all of that has to do with the fact that we were able to do this without using a notification. So you have a draft BIP. I assume you're looking for feedback there. And technically minded listeners and readers of the newsletter, I'm sure, have seen it. And we'll take a look at that. For other folks, maybe in the ecosystem, wallet or other software or library folks, would you be looking for them to, to reach out to you and, and, and start working on proof of concepts? Or are we not there yet? And, and if not, maybe what other call to action would, would you leave people with? Yeah, so... The years, so the current state of things, we have the, the draft BIP that's been opened. We've sent a post to the mailing list. Absolutely are looking for feedback on the mailing list post and the draft BIP. We've already got quite a bit of activity on the draft PR, the, the BIP PR, which has been really nice. My like very next most immediate task is I want to add test vectors to the BIP. And once the, you know, once the BIP has kind of settled into what I would say, you know, semi-final state, meaning there's going to be no major structural changes, which at this point, I'm, I don't really think there will be because we have socialized this a lot already. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that most of the feedback we would get at this point would be refining. 
But once we get the test vectors on there, you know, you have a, a technical document that says how to implement it. You have some testing vectors that you can use in your implementation to ensure that you're implementing it correctly. I would encourage anybody who's interested in this to start implementing it in their wallet. We've had a few people reach out and express interest and started working on implementations, which is really exciting. I'd love to see it packaged as a library that can be included in BDK. And then really just focusing on that sending support first, uh, get sending support out there widely, and then we can start working on the receiving. The other thing that I'm working on is we have a draft PR open against Bitcoin Core. This is an implementation of the BIP. So if you'd rather read code instead of the BIP, head on over to the PR and take a look. As of right now, the PR works as, as in it, it implements the BIP. I've got some unit tests that I'm pairing up with my test vectors to make sure that it's all good to go. The PR, I'm still kind of reworking like the style of it, just refactoring, making the code look nicer and et cetera, but it works. And so if you want to compile that PR and actually play around with it, reach out to me. I can give you my silent payment address. So I, I'm pretty happy with where we are. The, the next thing will be just socializing that the BIP is out there, reaching out to people who are, are building wallets and engaging their interest in doing this. So if, if that sounds like you, yeah, please reach out, Twitter, Noster. However, I'd love to chat. Ruben, any final words? I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure working with Josie. Uh, it's been pretty nice. He's got a ton of energy for this. And we've been uh, meeting every week, going back and forth on all the implementation details and really hashing it out. So, so that's been amazing. I've been very happy with this process and I'm very happy where we are at right now with the BIP and the, uh, the PR, the draft PR in uh, Bitcoin Core. So it's been great. Definitely. I agree. If you, I also think implementing the BIP is also the best way to give review. I think, because once you implement it, you really go down into the details and that's, that's the people we've gotten the best feedback from thus far. People that actually tried to proof of concept implementation and then said, Hey, what about this detail? What about this detail? So I definitely encourage that. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well, thank you both for joining us this week and, and giving us your insights into the proposal. And you're welcome to stay on and hang out for the rest of the newsletter, or you can drop a few other things to do. Thanks, guys. You got to bounce, but thanks so much for thanks. having us. Yeah, me too. Bye, guys. Gloria, I think you missed the introduction portion earlier in the podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself quickly before we jump into the section on waiting for confirmation? Sure. Yeah, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core. I'm sponsored by Brink. I really like mempool stuff. <laughs> so much that you want to write about it every week for 10 weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these these weeks I spent a lot of my time doing optech stuff, which is great. Yeah, it was it was hard to keep this post under a thousand words. <laughs> I had to ask a lot of people for help. I mean, I, I find should we just jump into it or the the this post? Yeah, yeah, we can. So if you're following along, this is part of a limited weekly series that we're doing in the Optech newsletter called Waiting for Confirmation. This entry is called Policy for Protection of Node Resources. And Gloria, I think Bitcoiners are probably familiar with the concept of, hey, we want to keep resource requirements low so that it's easy to run a node so that anybody can run a node and we can keep this Bitcoin network decentralized. So that would include being able to run a node on a variety of operating systems or a variety of commodity hardware yep. with reasonable memory, CPU, and network bandwidth requirements. So, and we have that. So great. We have low system requirements to run a Bitcoin node. So we're good, right, Gloria? Yeah. Well, that's, that's something that, you know, is something we have to, to maintain and 
in the way that we write the code. Of course, having support for various platforms is something you have to maintain over time. But there's there's also a, a second reason why policy is important, which is, you know, Bitcoin running a Bitcoin node is signing up for a rather like adversarial security slash threat model, right? Like if you're running a node and connecting to the peer to peer network, you're kind of signing up to have internet connections with randos who you you have no idea who they are in real life. There's there's no way to kind of try to guess whether or not they're malicious. And there's not really a way to effectively ban them either because you don't know who that real life entity is. You can like have some kind of legal process to be like, hey, this guy dosed me. So really like the only thing you can do while operating in this adversarial environment where you are accepting or you're making internet connections, you may be accepting connections from inbounds and like essentially allowing them to send you data to process and then you're going to allocate, you know, CPU and memory and network bandwidth to process this data. The only only thing you can really do is is program defensively to prevent DOS attacks. And this, I don't know, it's it's pretty cool. I haven't I haven't worked on many other software projects where this is the security model, but it, it's very interesting. And it, and it makes you know keeping the, like protecting node resources not only an ideal but an imperative. Right. So I, I, I've gotten a lot of questions from people saying like, oh, like what, you know, why, why does policy, like, why would you have validation rules on top of consensus? Like, isn't that censorship? But like, I, I think there's a really good Bitcoin talk post that I linked to in, in, in this, in this article where people are kind of imagining like what is kind of the maximally computationally intensive consensus valid transaction that you can create and you know it's a combination of you know signature verification which is very computationally expensive as well as quadratic zig hashing which is pre-segwit but you know if if you combine those into a transaction with thousands of inputs you know within the block size limit then you get something that could maybe take minutes to to validate and we've seen one in, in the wild. Rusty Russell has a nice blog post that I also linked to in there about this mega transaction that apparently took 25 seconds on average to validate using Bitcoin Core at the time. And this is not really something you want to sign up for when you're when you're just trying to run a Bitcoin node to you know relay transactions and, and all that. So that's that's it's the best reason I'd say to, to or you know, one of the best reasons to have policy. So yeah, if, you, if you're interested, read the post. There's some examples of, of policies in there. So even though on the box, when you look at Bitcoin core system requirements, that they are quite low and that, that's, not, that's not the solution to, to solving being able to run a node. You also need a series of policy heuristics and best practices in place to also make sure that you can continue to run that node into the future. Otherwise you're abused by potentially malicious peers on the network. And you go through in this post, a series of examples of, of policy that is designed to ensure that someone can be running a node with this minimal sort of hardware that we outlined at the beginning. So I, I thought it was a great post. Thank you for putting it together. You mentioned a few of the links that 
were pertinent, but, but there's a few other examples also in there that I think if, if folks are interested, they should jump into in terms of transaction relay policy, et cetera. Joost? Yeah, one thing I was wondering about the mega transaction example, like that you need to prevent things like that from happening using policy. Is, isn't that an indication that really the set of valid blocks should be should be reduced, like basically like soft forking and, and not allowing blocks that have so many of these operations? Or is it that this is like a dynamic value depending on current hardware capabilities so you can never really hard code that in the consensus layer? So basically, we never want to make any transactions that people could have created in the past and thrown away the signatures, sorry, the, the keys for it, but only kept the signatures invalid. So we we try to keep the consensus rules as lenient as possible and not potentially steal or destroy funds of people that they may have vaulted in some way. So in that regard, we, we try not to make the space of what possible transactions could be included in the future smaller unless we can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. That, that, that. that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I wanted to note is that I understand policy as a way to accomplish goals like this. But in the discussion of the annex, for example... I, I can also feel that there's, there's like also different ways in which the, the policy has quite a bit of power. So we're talking about the exact format for the annex. And then it seems that policy is a way to enforce a particular format, which is not really related to DOS, like whether you want, for example, a TOV format or a different format. Policy is going to determine what what will be possible, but it's not directly related to DOS. So I was wondering like how, how you guys think about that using using policy to enforce such such things as a format. Yeah, so just to be clear, hopefully I made it clear that DOS is not the only reason why, why we have policy and there's going to be a few more posts in this series. Gloria, thank you. Thank thank you for that. Um, let me try to finish her thought unless she is going to be back in seconds. But we're planning a few more posts in this series, and one one is going to be protecting network resources. So not only do we have to protect individual nodes from being dust, but there are also resources that are just expensive for the network in, in whole. For example, the size of the UTXO set incurs a cost on every node on what amount of data they need to scan in order to see whether new transactions are valid. And then another post will be about the mempool as an interface for other layers. So for example, the Lightning Network, of course, uses mempool or has other requirements on unconfirmed transactions than on-chain transactions. Let me see what else is there. Yeah, uh, I'm afraid that I forgot what what exactly the question was. Whether we can use policy as, as a way to shape what annexes are allowed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But I am understanding that maybe running ahead of like further episodes in this series, right? So... Yeah, maybe. Maybe I don't think that we had planned so far to specifically mention the annex. But one of the things that we wanted to do ever since the issue around Bash 32 and upgrading it to Bash 32M, delaying all these services that now are, are lagging behind in in adding support for sending to well pay to tapered outputs, is we would love for all the future upgrade mechanisms to, by default, not 
get created by wallets, but to get relayed, like if if a node understands it, that they can forward it to other peers that understands it, understand them. But like f for certain update mechanisms to to be pretty lenient on the policy, so that if your node is not upgraded yet, it will not black hole the transaction that it sees. But yeah, I, I think I have to ponder this a little more before I, I can specifically comment on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Merch mentioned a, a few potential topics for the rest of this series. And to tease the next one for next week, we, we state here in the segment that we point out that policy is not consensus and that two nodes may have different policies, but still agree, obviously, on the current chain state. And so next week, we'll discuss policy as an individual choice. Gloria, I see you're back. I've given you speaker access again. Welcome back. Sorry, I've been having Wi-Fi issues today. I'm not sure if you were able to listen to the last couple minutes, but Merch was sort of giving us a preview of some of the f future segments in this series, including, and I think you were talking about this, Gloria, that, that DOS protection of the individual node is not necessarily the only reason for policy, but also network resources as well. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna explore some other examples and reasons and, and and talk about a lot of the limitations that we have in mempool policy and what ideas we might have to improve them. So I, I hopefully have not at any any point given the impression that I think policy is perfect in Bitcoin Core. The goal of this this series is to start conversations and try to collaborate to improve things. So, yeah. Well, Gloria, thank you for joining us and, and walking us through this segment. You're welcome to stay on or drop a few of other things to do. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think you're the author of one of the PRs that we cover later in the newsletter. So if you, if you do want to hang on, we can get your take on it. Although I think we covered it in a PR review club segment of the Optech newsletter a few weeks ago. So up to you. Speaking of Bitcoin Core PR Review Club, we are joined by an unintroduced guest, Matthew Zipkin. Matthew, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? And then I can maybe frame the discussion and we can jump into the PR that we discussed for this month. Great. Yeah. Hey, my name is Matthew Zipkin. I'm a, a full-time engineer at Chaincode Labs working on Bitcoin Core with the mission of closing issues. And that's what led me down the, the path to write pull request number 27,600. Well, thank you for joining us. The PR that we're covering, the PR Review Club, covered allow inbound white bind connections to more aggressively evict peers when slots are full. So Matthew, maybe to give some context to the PR, can you explain how Bitcoin Core would handle an inbound peer request before this PR? And then maybe that will surface some of the potential downsides and room for improvement that you put into the PR itself. Yeah, sure. And, and yeah, that title is a bit of a mouthful. It's always hard to come up with a good title for things. But I can, let, let, me, let me put it this way. Like I, this, this PR actually relates directly to a use case that I have at home too. So I have a Bitcoin Core full node in my house that I run on a Raspberry Pi. And then I have several Bitcoin Lite clients that I run on both my laptop and my phone. And these are Bitcoin wallets and, and even Lightning wallets that can send and receive Bitcoin, but they don't need to be direct, they don't need to have the full blockchain on the device itself. So obviously on mobile, that is super helpful. And instead of relying on a third party API, like a hosted wallet or a custodial system, 
I can run my own full node. So when I open up, for example, Blue Wallet on my phone or maybe Wasabi Wallet on my laptop, those wallets connect directly to the full node that I maintain and physically secure and install the software on all by myself. So it's a good model. And I think it was, already, it was brought up that 158 is being a light client option for the silent payments too. So this is a model that like, you know, in, in a future, a fully decentralized future, I would love to see a Bitcoin full node in everyone's home, but you don't need a Bitcoin full node on everyone's mobile device, you know? So the idea is to, to, to assist users in a configuration where they run their own full node, but their actual like wallet is a light client that just runs on another device. And the way that those the two devices connect is over regular Bitcoin P2P connection. Not, not, you could do use maybe another API or something like that, but the, the, wallets that I mentioned actually do connect directly over the Bitcoin P2P. So does that make sense so far? Like these light, we're just talking about connecting light clients to full nodes so far and, and over the P2P network. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Okay, cool. So the problem with that is that is that there's lots of good reasons why Bitcoin Core also has a, a maximum limit of connections, total peers that it will connect to. And that is, I think it's, I forget what the default is now, probably Merch or Gloria, I know off the top of their head. It's, it's like eight outbounds, maybe eight in, inbound plus two extra block relay connections total, I think, and maybe two feeler connections. But either way, like those, those can fill up. And it's also adjustable too. If you run your own node, you can set max connections to, you know, a thousand if you have the, the bandwidth and the hardware to support that many peers. But either way, like you have a, a limit of peers that your node will connect to. And when you hit that limit, the behavior changes a little bit. It's a little harder to connect to that node. So there's a lot of interesting logic for supporting inbound connections. This is, you know, you set up a full node and, and other nodes connect to you to download block data. This is using your node to help support a strong network so that other participants can get the data they, they need and stuff like that. So it's always good to support inbound connections. But, you, but once your connection slot is full, what do you do when the next person requests an inbound connection to your node. And the naive approach would be to be like, well, we just don't let them in. We just reject it entirely. Uh, but that's actually not great policy because then it's possible to have a, uh, it leaves open an eclipse attack, I think. And what we'd like is some kind of churn. So if you, if you only have eight connection slots and all eight are full and here comes a ninth person requesting to connect, we don't necessarily want to reject them. What we do instead is we look at the eight inbound connections we already have and sort of pick one to kick out. And there's a number of, of qualifications that we go through. For example, we wouldn't evict an outbound connection. There are ways to add permissions to other inbound connections, things like no ban and whitelist. And that's kind of where this PR starts to get in. And then with the remaining connections that are unprotected, you know, I think we basically pick whichever node hasn't sent us a block in a long time or who has the lowest ping time or doesn't send us as many transactions as the other node. We pick a node that is the least good and evict that guy. And then we can let in the new inbound connection. So there's still, and is that clear up to, up to that point? Yes, sir. All right, cool. So one, that's one tiny point. I think it's altogether 125 connections that we make and 11 of them are outbound. So 114 inbound are by default allowed. Okay, great, great, great. Thanks. So, the, so that's the logic up till, up till now. And it sounds like what I'm talking about earlier should still be fine, that if I want to connect to my own full node with a light client, that there should always be a way in. But that's actually not always true because you could have a limited number of inbound connection slots and they could already be full with some of these nodes that we would protect for whatever reason. Or if, just, if there is nobody to evict, then, then your own node would get rejected from your own node. Your own light client could get rejected from your own node. 
and that's that has happened to me before, even on in, on my own system at home. You know, I try to open Wasabi Wallet, and I can't connect to my own full node because the inbound connections are are full, and that seems kind of silly. I control both of these devices; I should be able to get in there. Okay, and so so that leads us to the issue, which was opened by Thamos way back in 2016. This is issue number eight seven nine eight, and it 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 talks about a feature that was added in a really old version of Bitcoin Core 0.12 and then removed sometime in 2015 for being redundant. And you can read that issue for, for the specific clarity, but the, you know, the user complaint is basically what I'm saying. Like you have a light client that you want to connect to your full node, but full node is full of inbound connections, so it can't. So all my, PR do, all my PR does is it adds a new permission flag so that inbound nodes with that permission flag get a little extra help in connecting to your node. So the, the permission flag, and actually I need, I need to, to rewrite the description and title for this pull request because after review and discussion, the approach has changed from just like kind of a default behavior to something that we're going to specify with a new permission flag. So if you have a light client, what you do is you'd, in your full node configuration file, you'd specify this permission, which we're going to call force inbound working title. Force inbound and then specify the IP or IP range of, of inbound peers that are allowed to have that force inbound flag set. And when your full node detects an inbound connection request from a force inbound peer, it'll try a little extra harder to make room. And so what it does is it goes through the normal process that I described earlier, where it looks to see if there's anybody can evict. And if it can't find somebody to evict, it picks a random node to evict. Nodes that, that are remain protected, even in this case, are the outbound nodes. We never want to just arbitrarily evict an outbound node because that is our main weapon in peer selection. And peer selection is extremely important to protect ourselves from eclipse attacks. So we don't want to mess with the outbound connections. People are working really hard and making sure that outbound connections are always good. But we'll try a little extra harder to find an inbound connection to evict. And then you can connect your light client to your full node. And then this opens up you know, some, some vulnerabilities. The reason why, why we decided to use a special permission flag instead of making this default behavior is because what you could be doing is basically saying any connections that come from this node, that come from this IP address or this IP range are allowed to connect to me and I will keep kicking out peers until, you know, they're connected. So there's a potential kind of attack there. For example, if somebody were to figure out, you know, or be able to spoof IPs, if they were able to figure out how you were configured to let these force inbound nodes in, they could fill up your connection slots with, with the force inbound flag and still manage to evict your peers. So that's why we're making it a, a slightly different permission flag, just so that it's, it's a new feature. It's not changing the behavior of anybody's existing configuration, but we still get the, the behavior that we want when people opt into that. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we were able to sometimes decide whether the other end of a connection has exactly the device that we're thinking it is? Yes, it would be really great if there was some kind of way to <laughs> identify nodes cryptographically without revealing that they're being identified, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah, that work yeah, is, yeah. Merck and I are joking because that, that work is... a problem that somebody solves. And yeah. I see that Michael has, Tidwell has a question or a comment. I'll, I'll give the word to him. Hey, Matthew. Question for you is, I was wondering if you did have something where you cycled all your inbound connections to be potentially like malicious people, you still have those outbound connections that can't be cycled based on what you're telling me. So how would someone Eclipse attack you or how would someone, maybe you can just kind of walk through, like how, how can you still be vulnerable if you still have those solid outbound connections? 
you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, correct, correct. Great question. And actually, the, the answer is that the, the vulnerability that I'm describing doesn't actually lead to an eclipse attack. So you're, because of the outbounds, you're still safe. But, but there's, it's more of a, a griefing attack, and it's not really you that could get screwed. It's the other inbound nodes that are connected to you. So we don't want a way for, for an attacker to like arbitrarily break connections out there. Like my personal node will probably be fine because of the outbounds. But, but if I'm allowing an attacker to disconnect some of my inbound connections, those people get screwed because they were connected to, to my node, which is a great node. And, you know, all of a sudden those connections are going to get dropped, you know. And- and the follow-up question is, I imagine, I mean, I know you mentioned a whitelist earlier, but I imagine there's a way to hard-code a, a permanent inbound connection that isn't going to be dropped this way. Yeah, well, so kind of like what, what Birch and I were alluding to, that, that the only way we really have currently to identify nodes and to give them special permissions or properties is by IP address or ranges of, an, of IP address. So, for example, like it, in my home, it's pretty simple. I can add a, a, a white bind or whitelist rule to my Bitcoin.com file that always allows connections from 192.168.0.0 slash 24. Basically, anything on my local network is always allowed to connect to my Bitcoin core node. That's going to be something that's really hard for an attacker to spoof unless they walk into my house and get on my network. And, and, and then... Final question is the the joke that you and Merch were alluding to. I know I know it's kind of tongue in cheek or something with identity or something. Can you just kind of touch on that because I did that was over my head. Yeah, sure. So there's a a major project called based on BIP three twenty four in Bitcoin Core that Peter Will has taken back charge of, and this is an encrypted peer to peer transport mechanism so that when nodes connect to each other, all the traffic is is encrypted, and and Optech has done a lot of great work reporting on that. And another feature of that encrypted connection is something called countersign, which Greg Maxwell proposed a really long time ago and is also being researched and developed right now. And that would allow nodes to basically identify themselves in certain cases. So what I would be able to ultimately do once all that work is done and deployed is I could simply give my full node a list of, of public keys, of identity keys, you know, the same way you would have an authorized, authorized keys file in your SSH directory on your server. I could tell my full node that, like, if any light clients try to connect to you with these specific cryptographic identities, always let them connect. Maybe one more sentence on this is that the Bitcoin network does not and encrypt its traffic so far. So it's basically trivial for anyone that is along a route where we're routing the current traffic to intercept and change the communication. So once we have BIP324 and encrypt the traffic between nodes, it would make sense to have some sort of authentication mechanism, which will make it way easier for light clients to connect to specific full nodes and vice versa. And yeah, that's that's basically what that joke was about. Right. Oh, the vice versa is, is important there too, because as a light client, I want to make sure that I'm talking to the full node that, that I expect I'm connecting to, the one that I might personally run and protect. Yeah. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yeah, you're welcome to stay on, but we appreciate your time and, and walking us through it as the author of this PR. Thanks, Smitty. Bye. Next section from the newsletter is releases and release candidates, of which we just have one, which is Core Lightning 
which is a maintenance release, and it fixes several crashes reported in the wild, quote unquote, including a memory corruption issue with an RPC, a crash on some deletion, the gossip store deletion failures, incompatibility with LND, which prevented opening private channels, and a crash related to some of the dual funding that's recently been put in. Merch, did you have anything to add to this release? Thumbs up. Great. And we have four PRs for this week that we want to recap. The first one is Bitcoin Core 27501, adding a Git Prioritized Transactions RPC. And this is actually the topic that we covered in the last month's Bitcoin Core PR Review Club. So if you're curious about the details of this, check out newsletter 250 and check out podcast 250, where we jump into some of the details. Gloria is here, but does not have speaker access. Merch, do you want to give a, a TLDR on what is a prioritized transaction? Sure. So the RPC prioritized transaction allows us to modify the priority with which we would accept a transaction into a block template that we ourselves are building. So it's a way of making your node consider a transaction earlier or later during block building. And the idea here is, for example, if a block builder is interested in confirming their own transactions, even if the fee rate is lower or things like that, they can use prioritized transaction in order to individually change how the transaction is considered during block billing. But the, the RPC is probably not getting used a ton and therefore it had not been, it hadn't seen a lot of review and, and changes in the past. One of the issues around that, PR, that RPC was that I believe the, the table where we store the information about what transactions had gotten prioritized was keeping the data forever even if the transaction was already confirmed. And especially even if you remove the priority and set it back to no change, we would keep an entry for that transaction in our table. I think it does get cleared if you remove your mempool file, but otherwise, even through restarts, we would keep that information. And with so there, there's been a few small improvements on that behavior. So for example, confirmed transactions get removed and transactions that get back set back to zero get removed and then i think with the get prioritized transactions call you can actually output a list and see what is on your nodes configuration for treating differently or not and i see that gloria's back so she can correct anything i said wrong now <laughs> sorry that was a great explanation thank you we do clear it when a transaction confirms or if a conflicting transaction confirms. But yeah, it's persisted across restart. It doesn't expire. If it's set to zero, we don't delete it. But yeah. Gloria, one question I had for you on this PR is what was the motivation for you to spend your time on this? What, does this connect to, to something else you're working on or did you just notice an area for improvement? So I started looking at this code when I saw usage of a prioritized transaction in in a different project. And I mean, it's it should only be used by miners, really. But yeah, I, I was kind of concerned that 
first of all, you could like quote unquote cancel a prioritized transaction by setting it to zero, but you'd we'd just keep that entry around forever. So I was thinking if somebody uses it in production, they have this like not memory leak, but kind of. And especially if you can't even query your node for what prioritized transactions you have, if it falls out of your mempool, for example, the only option was going to be to inspect the mempool.dat, which didn't seem very good. So yeah, that's that was the motivation for working on it. Cool, thanks. Next PR this week is Core Lightning 6243. And this PR changes some of the internal plumbing and RPC output for working with configuration variables in Core Lightning, as well as it looks like setting the groundwork for some additional changes to the way that configuration is managed within Core Lightning. And it also adds a long requested feature, which has to do with an issue that was opened in Core Lightning a while back. And this person was noting that when you initially start Lightning D, configuration variables were passed to the different plugins that you have enabled for Core Lightning. However, you're also able to stop and restart that plugin independent of the node stopping and restarting. And if you stopped the plugin and restarted it, these configuration variables weren't passed to the plugin, resulting in a potentially inconsistent experience for folks using plugins. So in addition to some of that plumbing work I mentioned, it, it fixes this issue slash feature request. Merch, any comments on that? Great. Next PR is Eclair 2677, which extends the maximum permitted number of blocks until a payment attempt times out. And this is something that we've seen in the past. LND and Core Lightning already have, I think it's about two weeks, which is 2016 blocks. And so Eclair is doubling their number of blocks from 1008 to this 2016 number from one week to two weeks. And TBAS noted in the PR that the network is generally raising the values of CLTV expiry delta to account for high on-chain fees. So we'll need to allow longer maximum deltas to avoid rejecting payments. So we see another instance of high usage on chain sort of being a forcing function in terms of folks configuration and, and making optimizations. Merch, thoughts on this Eclair PR? Yeah, basically, well, maybe yours can even say more about this, but the issues around having really high fee rates and fee rates changing a lot all over the place were, were affecting Lightning users, and they started increasing the amount of blocks they want to have for forwarding, uh, sorry, for settling an HTLC that they forwarded in case that the transaction needs to go on-chain. So basically the individual hops started requiring bigger block deltas for each hop. And that me meant that overall the, the max CLTV, which is for the entire multi-hop payment, started being, an, being a limit for how many hops you could encode before reaching that max CLTV. So I think that that, that was the main motivation for, for increasing that. Of course, on the other end, having a very large max CLTV means that you potentially have to wait an immense amount of time until you know whether payment went through or actually failed. And yeah, so 
you you would love to know as soon as quick as possible whether a payment went through or not, but it gives the last hop or someone along the route a lot of leeway to just hold and not forward a multi-hop payment and grief you. So I, I guess that's that's the two extremes that people are keeping in mind here when they pick these values. Yeah, that's correct indeed. And, and the larger values, as you mentioned, also make it easier to, to jam channels for, for a long time without refreshing HGLCs. And interestingly, I, if I remember this correctly, maybe this is two, three, four years ago, there was no maximum. So that was like a severe vulnerability that you had. You could receive a, an HGLC that, and you were instructed to apply a delta of 10,000 blocks and then implementation would just do that. So that was when this limit and a corresponding failure message were first brought to, to life. But indeed, then they tried to lower it and now bringing it back up again a bit. Thanks, Joost. Last PR for this week is to the Rust Bitcoin repository, 1890. And this adds a method for counting the number of signature operations in non-tap script scripts. The author of this PR noted that, quote, bare multisig is making a comeback, which is causing a large amount of transactions effective V sizes for fee calculation to be dependent on the SIG op count. And I think what the author is referring to here is potentially this Bitcoin stamps protocol that encodes data into the Bitcoin blockchain using bare multisig. And the author notes that this is a first step at making those transactions easier to estimate fees or block templates for. So per our discussion with Gloria earlier about DOS attacks, the number of SIG ops is limited per block. And we've actually seen some blocks recently that were broadcast, but they were invalid due to this specific SIG ops limit check. So I guess this utility library can help potentially mitigate some of that merge. Yep, exactly. So the limit is 80,000 signature operations per block. There's a key on how we count each output type. So for example, a multi a bare multi-sig output is counted as 80 signature operations, which sort of is the maximum of possible signatures that a multi-sig operation could have, like up to, I think it's allowed to have up to 20 public keys. And then we multiply that with the witness discount factor. So multiply it by four. And it looks like F2Pool might have custom block building software because they may have forgotten to account for their Coinbase transaction signature operations. They had two blocks in the past couple of months where they were just slightly over the allowed signature operations in their block. And I think that was in, they, they had like 80,000 and two, three signature operations twice and that cost them two block rewards if anybody has any questions now would be the time to raise your hand for speaker access or you're free to comment on the, the twitter thread in the meantime i wanted to thank our guests who joined us this week so thank you to gloria for joining us yost josie ruben and matthew and our part-time co-host michael tidwell for joining us. Merch, any comments or announcements before we jump off? Not all good for me. Okay. Thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next week. Cheers. See you.